study as we're doing the, the doing character studies of men in the Bible, and um, uh, we're doing many of those that don't have a lot of recognition in the Bible. You know, we know David, we know Paul, you know, all, all the big names, and and uh, but some of the the lesser known, but have a significant part in God's word and in teach and, and learning great and mighty things. And so tonight we're uh, starting on the character of Samson. And we're going to be in Judges chapter 13, verse 1. And verse 1 is the only verse we're going to look at tonight. Uh, but uh, Samson, it's about Samson and backsliding Israel. Samson and backsliding Israel. The book of Judges is quite a contrast to the closing chapters of the book of Joshua just before it. Because in Joshua, you see a nation that was resting from war. And it was enjoying the riches that God had given them in the promised land. And as compared to the book of Judges now, on the other hand, Judges pictures Israel suffering from invasion, slavery, poverty, and civil war. So what happened from Joshua going into the book of Judges? Well, the nation of Israel quickly went down the tubes. After a new generation took over, a generation that didn't know Joshua, nor Joshua was God. In Judges chapter 2, verse 7 and 10, it says, So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. But when all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, when they all died, Another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel. Joshua 24, 31 says, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had known all the works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. Instead of showing spiritual enthusiasm, Israel's disposition turned from spiritual enthusiasm to a lack of concern. And instead of obeying the Lord, the people went into apostasy. And instead of the nation enjoying law and order, the land was filled with lawlessness. In reality, it was the worst of times for Israel. One of the key verses in the book of Judges is chapter 21, verse 25. And it reads, In those days there was no king in Israel, and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. It sounds very much like our country tonight. People are doing what is right in their own eyes. Now in Deuteronomy 6, it outlines the nation's basic responsibilities. Love and obey Jehovah as the only true God, verses 1 through 5. Teach your children God's laws, verses 6 through 9. Be thankful for God's blessings in verses 10 through 15. And separate yourself from the worship of the pagan gods in the land of Canaan, in verses 16 through 25. So again, Deuteronomy 6 outlined or outlines the nation's basic responsibilities. And you know what? Those, that outline is still applicable to this day. But the new generation failed on each one of those responsibilities because the people did not want to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Instead, they'd rather experiment with the idolatry of the godless nations around them. And as a result, Israel took an uncontrolled nosedive straight down into moral, spiritual, and political disaster. 
One of two things was true. Either the older generation had failed in their responsibility to teach and train their children and grandchildren in the ways of the Lord, or if they had faithfully done that, if they had faithfully taught them, then the new generation had refused to submit to God's law and follow God's ways. The book of Judges is the story of that rebuke. And chapters 1 and 2 describe four stages in Israel's decline and fall. First, fighting the enemy. Second, sparing the enemy. Third, imitating the enemy. And fourth, obeying the enemy. Here we have the, uh, one of the strongest stories of the Old Testament, the story of Samson. And it's the story of a great opportunity and a terrible failure in the life of a man who might have brought about a great deliverance for Israel, but he failed to do that. Everything would seem to have been in his favor. His birth was prophesied by an angel. The prophesying led to his special training because Manoah, his father, asked the angel very carefully how he should train his son. And these facts make the story of Samson's failure even more terrible. There's almost an, a prophetic suggestiveness in the phrase that's used by the angel concerning him here in verse 5 that said, He shall begin to deliver Israel. And I say a prophetic suggestiveness because it says, He shall begin to deliver Israel, inferring that he didn't deliver them. He started to. Samson's greatest failure was expected just as much as his chance for success. He had the chance to do both. Samson seems to stand as a symbol of the nation in his strength and possibility and also equally his, his ruin and his failure. And this is what we're going to see as we follow the story of Samson. And in the light of the years after there, after, there is a terrible sadness in this description of his beginnings here in verse 25, where it says, The Spirit of Jehovah began to move upon him. If he would have only yielded to the prompting of the Holy Spirit, what a different story this could have turned out to be. Samson was physically the strongest man who ever lived, and yet at the same time he was also a very weak man. And his weakness overcame his strength. His weakness, like Solomon's, was with the ladies. His sensual craving for unholy women. And you could say that he chased after them uncontrollably until God deserted him because of these ungodly pursuits. And Samson's great strength had given him unbelievable potential for doing a great work in delivering Israel. But because of his moral weakness, he accomplished very little of his great potential. Samson is the last judge, the 13th judge written about in the book of Judges. And we learn more details about Samson's life from the Bible than we do from any of the other judges. But what we learn is a sad story about his failures, contrasting the stories of great success, which characterized most of those uh, that, that came before him. C.F. Kelly says this, The life and acts of Samson are described with an elaborate fullness that seems quite out of proportion to the help and deliverance that he brought to his people. After studying the life of Samson, it's surprising to find him, think about it, in, in Hebrews chapter 11, the heroes of faith. He's recognized as a man of faith. 
just like Lot appears in 1 Peter chapter 2 as a man of righteousness. But as we're going to see, there were several incidents when Samson, in spite of his bad behavior, did truly demonstrate faith, significant faith in Almighty God. And it was significant, especially because of the apostate time that he lived in. But Samson didn't live a consistent life of faith. He only demonstrated faith on several occasions. If he had lived a consistent life of faith, he would have been the greatest judge in the book of Judges. And he would have brought about a wonderful deliverance for Israel. In the day that we live in, we need to study the life of Samson closer. His failures in Christianity are are being repeated with surprising Regularity resulting in, in a great diminishing of a true Christian testimony. So we need more than ever today the warning, the, the warning lessons from the life of this strong but weak judge of Israel. So let's look at chapter 13, verse 1. It's our text for this evening. It says, Again, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for forty years. The book of Judges introduces now the story of Samson with verse 1. It's like a broken record that you hear over and over again the same thing. Here, like a boring story we've heard uh, or we've read over and over again, this phrase in the book of Judges, here in verse 1, Again, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And here it is again but it's the last time that we hear it. It introduces the longest period of oppression that God sent to his people, 40 years, 40 years being under Philistine rule. Dr. Wood suggests that Samson's judgeship started about the time of the tragedy at Aphek and that his main job was to harass the Philistines and keep them from successfully overrunning the land and endangering the people. There's no evidence Given in the text that Israel cried out to God for deliverance at any time, think of it, during that 40 years that the Philistines ruled the land. They never cried out for deliverance. The Philistines disarmed the Jews, so there wasn't a lot of fear of the Jews rebelling. And in chapter 15, verses 9 through 13, it it, it indicates that the Jews seemed to be content with their situation. They didn't want Samson to rock the boat. You know, it's really scary how fast we can get used to being in bondage and learn how to accept the the way things are. And and I, I think of the United States of America and how many people are just accepting the way things are and not standing up for righteousness' sake. If the Philistines had been more uh, more severe on the Jews, maybe they would have prayed to Jehovah for help. And unlike most of the judges before Samson, he didn't deliver his people from foreign rule. But he began the work of deliverance, but others would finish it. And as a powerful and unpredictable hero, Samson frightened and troubled the Philistines. And and he kept them from devastating Israel as other invading nations had already done. It would take the prayers of Samuel 
and the victories of David to finish the job that Samson started to give Israel total victory over the Philistines. This beginning verse, verse 1 of chapter 13, is very important to understanding why, to the understanding of why Samson was needed and why he was brought into the picture and why his failure was so disastrous. Because it describes Israel's going backwards. Going backwards from the troubles that they got themselves into because of their sin. And going backwards is backsliding. And it's a sad cycle that kept, that kept reoccurring, that kept occurring in Israel during the 400, uh, that, the 400 that followed the death of Joshua, the era, the era that's known as the time of the judges in Israel's history. Here's the pattern. Israel would sin, then God would bring judgment upon them. That judgment would cause them to cry out under the oppression of another nation or nations. And then under the pain and suffering and the humility of oppression, Israel would then cry out to God for help. And then because of God's great passion and mercy and long-suffering, he would send them a deliverer. But then after being delivered, what happened? They'd go right back. They'd eventually go backwards. They'd go back again to their evil ways and then again experience more judgment of God through an oppressing nation or nations. And so this is what sets the stage now for Samson to come on the scene in chapter 13. But it was still another time of Israel going backwards, which verse 1 describes in just a few words. And we start our study of Samson in this first study by looking at Israel's going backwards, Israel's backsliding. That backsliding that was plaguing Israel when Samuel, oh, I'm sorry, when Samson came on the scene. And in our study, we're going to look at the, at the character of Israel's backsliding. First, Israel's backsliding was, was sinful. Israel's backsliding was sinful. Verse 1 makes that very clear. God himself said it was sinful. All right? It was sinful, which is pointed out by the words in verse 1, in the sight of the Lord. Notice again, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. This is, this, there, there's a double meaning in these words. One meaning, which is probably the most obvious meaning, is that God saw Israel's behavior. And we'll talk more about that later on as the study goes on. For right now, we're going to look at the fact that God saw their behavior as being evil. In other words, in the, God judged their behavior to be evil and not righteous. And God judged according to His standards. And it was judged as evil. He determined and he declared that their behavior was evil. And of course, Israel didn't think so. In Israel's eyes, their behavior wasn't evil. Why? Because it was judged by their own standards. They approved their behavior. They encouraged their behavior. They honored their behavior. They popularized it. They promoted it. They were all in favor of it. But when it comes to deciding what's good or what's evil, it doesn't matter what man calls be evil behavior or how acceptable he makes it or how popular it is with him. The determining factor as to whether or not behavior is good or is what God says about the behavior. He sets the standards. What constitutes evil? From a biblical standpoint, evil is anything that destroys you or others around you. 
we desperately need to get our standards back to God's standards today. We are always labeling a bunch of things good that God calls evil. And labeling things that are evil, God calls evil, we call good. Men set up their designed rules and then they play the game of life according to their own design, their own rules. And they use their rules to decide who's the winner and who's the loser, who's successful and who's not, who's in and who's out. But the true outcome of the game of life isn't decided according to our rules. God decides what's right and what's wrong, not us. Just like ancient Israel, a lot of evil is approved of and encouraged in our land today. But the last word still comes from God. Abortion is sin. Drunkenness is sin. Adultery is sin. Pornography is sin. Homosexuality is sin. Same-sex marriage is sin. And the list goes on. And our legislatures, they may legalize every single one of these sinful deeds, and the news media may praise it and support it, but these things are still sins. But that doesn't make these behaviors justifiable in God's eyes because that people think it's okay. Men and women will eventually be judged as to whether they are good or evil, not by man's rule or popularity, but by the unchangeable holy laws of God. The second thing that we see about Israel's backsliding is Israel's backsliding was idolatrous. It was idolatrous. Whenever Israel departed from God during the time of the judges, as well as other times in their history, they always went into idolatry. And especially Baalism, with its, its related gods and, and goddesses and its really corrupt religious practices. Baal was a, Baal was a, uh, the god of Baal was a heathenistic pagan god who was supposed to control the rain and fertility. The female counterpart of Baal was called Ashtaroth or Ishtar by the Assyrians or Astarte by the Greeks, uh, Venus by the Romans. And when an altar to Baal was set up, it was normal to find idol poles set up in honor of, of the goddess Ashtaroth. And these idol poles were sometimes called groves in the, in the King James Version. And, and, and Ashtaroth was considered the part, to be the partner of Baal. And this religion was a morally rotten, vile, sensual religion. And in their religious practices, they made immoral sex acts a part of their worship. It was a part of their ritual. Baal temples included rooms where, where male and female prostitutes practiced these rites in the name of religion, in the name of their gods. And such a religion greatly corrupted a country. It dropped morals to incredible depths and it destroyed character as a whole. So naturally, it invited the condemnation of God and His wrath. Bad doctrine always produces bad behavior. Purity in morals will come when there's purity in doctrine. When Israel went into idolatry, the morals dropped into the sewer. And when they came back to God, morals were raised. This is always the way it works in any age. 
in any civilization, in any society. So it shouldn't be any surprise that our land is so morally degraded when you think about the corrupt doctrines that are embraced by so many churches and denominations in our land. Doctrine is so bad in some churches that you have homosexuals being ordained to the ministry, teaching Sunday schools, you know, preaching in the pulpit. Balaamism, Baalism doesn't have anything on many of the churches and denominations of our day. They are slowly but surely being converted to the ways of the world. The third thing they see about Israel's backsliding is that it was inexcusable. Again, verse 1 says, Again, the children of Israel did evil. And in Judges, we read eight times that Israel did evil. Here in verse 1 is the eighth time. Four times it says they did evil again. All of this repetition and doing evil tells us that Israel never seemed to learn their lesson from past history. And you would think that after they had you know, time and time again, seeing the terrible consequences of evil, that they, would, that they would wise up and they would stop it, that they'd stop doing evil, but they didn't. They ignored the warnings of the past and they still practiced the same sins that cursed their ancestors. And what they did, their failures, were totally inexcusable. Paul said in Romans 1 that, that you know, Man, man has no excuse. No excuse. This problem wasn't unique to Israel. And it, it, and it occurs in every generation. One generation legalizes some evil, and then they pay a terrible price for it. The next generation comes along, and they do it again. And nations repeat other nations' evil, and they suffer the same consequences. As we've heard the old saying, one thing we learn from history is that we don't learn from history. And this is definitely true for us today. In spite of the fact that we claim to be higher educated, more intelligent, more evolved, more progressive, more woke, we never seem to learn about the dangers of our sins. And again, today we, we're seeing many evils promoted legalized and honored. We have a scary history of lawless consequences. You know, our, our, our nation is still warned about the danger of alcohol and people are still drinking and driving and involved in drunk driving accidents. We're warned about immoral sexual relations and unwanted pregnancies resulting in abortion the innocence, uh, of the innocent, the spreading of STDs like crazy. Warnings about the illicit use of drugs. And more dangerous now than ever with this fentanyl plague that's going around killing young kids. The overdose, it's still going on. People try to justify their evil behavior, but they have no excuse whatsoever for practicing them because they've been warned and warned for years about the dangers of their evil ways. I love what General Omar Bradley said. We have grasped the mystery of the Adam and rejected the Sermon on the Mount. The world has achieved brilliance without conscience. Our, our, ours is a world of nuclear giants and ethical infants. The fourth thing that we see about Israel's backsliding is God's awareness of it. 
Again, verse 1 said, Israel did their evil in the sight of the Lord. So Israel's sins wasn't hided from God's view. They sinned, God saw it, and he eventually brought judgment of the oppression of the Philistines on them for their sin. And the people couldn't escape God's judgment because they couldn't get away from God's all-seeing eye. And one, one lesson the Bible teaches again and again is that all of our sin is done in plain sight, in the plain sight of God's eyes. Jeremiah 16, 17 says, For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity hidden from my eyes. Proverbs 15, 3, Solomon said, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Hebrews 4, 13 reads, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Job 28, 24, For he looks to the ends of the earth, and he sees under the whole heavens. Jeremiah 23, 24, Can anyone hide himself in secret places, so I shall not see him, says the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, says the Lord? Where can you go to escape the all-seeing eye of God? Nowhere. That's why Numbers, 23, Numbers 32, 23 says, Your sin will find you out. God sees it. And he will expose it, and he will judge it in his time. You might fool yourself into believing and thinking that no one sees. And maybe no human eyes have seen. But God always sees. And that ruins your ideas of hiding your sinful deeds forever. And when we think about this truth, that God sees our sin, <clears throat> we need to remember <clears throat> that this in even includes our thoughts. The psalmist said in Psalm 139, verse 2, You know my thoughts even when I'm far away. Even before they get into my head. He knows them. Knowing this, man, should wake anybody up who thinks they can enjoy himself in unholy thoughts without any punishment. A sign of godliness is one's great concern for the purity and the properness of of, of their thoughts, of what they think. Godly people won't be concerned just about the purity of, their, of what, what they do, but they'll also be asking God at the same time, Lord, give me a clean mind. And we're told by Paul to put on the mind of Christ. This was the, this was the request of the psalmist when he not only prayed that the words of his mouth would be acceptable with God, but also that the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Psalm 19, 14. And it would be super encouraging. It would really help godly behavior if we kept in our minds this great fact that God sees us all the time. Now, we are very likely to make our behavior as impressive as, as, impressive as we can when certain people are watching. But it doesn't seem to occur to us or to many people that God Almighty is always watching us. And while this knowledge that he's watching us should warn the sinner, at the same time it should also encourage the godly because God not only sees the evil of man, but he also sees the good of man. And you know, sometimes we wonder, 
Or sometimes, you know, sometimes the godly wonder, you know, if his or her faithfulness, you know, that, that's, that's lived out in, in obscure places, you know, where people may not see you, does it really matter? It does, because God sees it. And what you do in public is no better seen than per, the performance that you do in private when it comes to God. Always remember this, you'll, and you'll perform well anywhere. Another thing that we see about the backsliding of Israel, God's, chastis- God's chastisement for Israel's backsliding. God saw, so God will act. It says, because Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. And then we see the instrument of Israel's chastisement, which was the Philistine. The Philistines were the nation that God used in Samson's day to punish the Israelites for their evil. The Philistines, who are so much a part of the story of Samson, aren't spoken about much in Scripture until the book of Judges and the story of Samson. But they are mentioned as early as the book of Genesis and Exodus and Joshua. But it's not until the story of Samson that the Philistines become well known. The Philistine nation, it was a small nation. It included a very small section of Canaan. And their land was just a small strip located in the southern, the southwestern corner of Palestine with the Mediterranean Sea as their western border, Israel as their northern border, and eastern, uh, an eastern border, the desert uh, just south of Gaza, as their southern border. They were such a small nation that they had only five cities that were of any significance. Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron, and Gath. But when Samson came on the scene, the Philistine nation had become great in its power, so much so that they held Israel in check. And that power continued on until the time of David. And under David's leadership, the Philistine strength was greatly reduced. And from then on, Philistia is seldom mentioned in Scripture because it was no longer a nation of any strength or importance. And even though Philistia was so small and could greatly oppress Israel, which was a much larger nation, that shows us what sin can do to the strength of God's people. Israel should have been able to control Philistia, but it was often the other way around. One time during King Saul's day, Philistia so controlled and dominated Israel that Israel wasn't allowed by the Philistines to have a blacksmith in their land. Multitudes of God's people have followed in the same footsteps of Israel and Samson. And many Christians have at times displayed great victory in their lives and have done great things for God. But then one day, we see them falling away helplessly into great sin. Why is that? Because they basically unplugged themselves from the heavenly power supply. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. And then when the enemy comes along, they quickly fell. And that's why Paul said, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And then we see the time of the chastisement of Israel's backsliding. 
Forty years, the Philistines dominated them. This was twice as long as the longest oppression of the past. The longest chastisement before this one took place during the time of Barak and Deborah. King Jabin and the Canaanites, they were the oppressors at that time. And Judges 4.3 says, For 20 years he had harshly, King Jabin had harshly oppressed the children of Israel. The length of time of Israel's chastisement is an indictment on Israel. And it, and, it, and it points out their stubborn insistence to do evil. They just insisted on doing evil because their hearts were so terribly hard. And that's what happens when you, when you just persist in doing evil. Your heart becomes hardened. Hardened. So hardened that even though they were oppressed and suffered under this oppression, there's no record, there's nothing written of them ever crying out to God for help. Always in the previous times of judgment, Israel eventually cried out to God for help. The chastisement was longer than it needed to be. It always is. In closing... We don't gain anything by delaying, by not repenting right away. All we do is drag out our misery longer. In spite of Israel's hard heart, God still eventually raised up a deliverer. I mean, that is, that is the great grace of God. Always in previous oppressions, God would raise up a deliverer after Israel cried out for help. And that still is grace. But here, he raises up a deliverer in Samson. Even though they didn't cry out to God for help. It was grace upon grace upon grace in this situation. Few things show the grace of God so well as when God speaks or God seeks our salvation, even when we're not crying out to be saved, even when we don't want to be saved, we're not looking to be saved. God will come after us. God wants to save us. And, and while we may not normally associate Samson with grace, the fact is him, Samson, coming on the scene to deliver the Israelites was a special display of God's amazing grace. And so we, may we never forget the grace of God. It's always there. He's just waiting for us to come and to ask, to open our hearts to Him, to let Him in. So may we remember the wonderful grace of God. That even when, when the, as the Bible says, when we didn't want anything to do with God, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know, when we didn't want anything to do with God, He still went to the cross for us, making salvation available to us. Again, the amazing grace of God. Father, we thank You so much for your amazing grace. <clears throat> we thank you, Father, once again, Lord, for showing your love to us, Lord. 
for making it available to us, God. Father, help us never to get to the point where we get so hard-hearted, God, that we don't want anything to do with you, Lord. Father, help us not to be complacent in our relationship with you, God. Help us to not get lazy in seeking you. Help us, Father, to be committed. Help us to stand up. Help us to stand our ground, God. Father, give us the strength that we need, Lord. And through your word and through prayer and through the fellowship of one another, God, to help and to pray and to encourage one another, we can, Lord. We can stand against the many, Lord, as they try to, again, shove their evil down our throats and, and to turn, turn it away from God because of the pressure that they want to put on us and are trying to put upon us, Lord. Lord, we know that you're coming soon. And your word says, those who endure to the end shall be saved. So we thank you, Father. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.